Welcome to Journey Through Scripture, day 54. Uh, Today we are in Exodus chapter 33, verse 7, through the end of chapter 34, and then we're going to be in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 30. Okay, Um, so Exodus 33, verse 7. Um, Here uh, is um, something pretty interesting. Um, I kind of mentioned it in passing a few days ago, but here we have um, what appears to be a another tent of meeting. So note that the tabernacle, <clears throat> of course, has not been constructed yet. That's going to happen. Uh, we'll start seeing that tomorrow. But here we're told that Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. Okay, there's another. So not only is this tent standing here at this point, but it's outside the camp, whereas uh, the, uh, the tabernacle, as we will see, stands inside the camp. In fact, the tribes are encamped around it. And um, this, too, is called a tent of meeting. And this tent appears to be a place here before the actual tabernacle is erected where, uh, where, where those who were seeking the Lord would go there and Moses would go there and when Moses went there, the Lord would meet him in a pillar of fire, and um, and he would worship. And here we are told in a verse that is both interesting and important, verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Um, this, this idea of the Lord speaking to someone face to face is actually... Uh, repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 4, and it refers to um, that initial contact on Mount Sinai that we saw back in Revelation 19 and then chapter 20, where it seems to refer to the <clears throat> hearing the audible voice of God without a mediator. And then Moses steps in and becomes the mediator between God and the people. So Moses is the one who kind of retains that, um, that face-to-face relationship and means of communicating or hearing from God. And then uh, when Moses is done, uh, he would leave. Uh, but interestingly, and again, we noted Joshua's presence yesterday um, during the, the golden calf incident, but uh, Joshua, we are told, did not depart from the tent. So Joshua remains there. And of course, we're not really told what the benefit of that is or, or what what happened when he did but we're but note that Joshua is is kind of really um really following in Moses's footsteps here and is also cultivating this this close relationship with God um then in in verse 12 and following the second half of chapter 33 we have some interesting stuff going on so Moses is communicating with Yahweh, and he says, See, you say to me, bring this people up, but you've not let yet let me know whom you will send with me. Um, but you say, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. So essentially Moses is like, uh, what's, what's going on here, God? I, uh, you know, I have this face-to-face relationship with you. We, I know I've found favor in your sight. You tell me I have. And yet, I'm kind of, in the aftermath of the golden calf debacle, what am I supposed to do? Are you, are you going to be coming, are you going to be with us or not? Now, this is, um, 
this is important because God did say in verse 2 that he will send his angel, his messenger, before them. Um, but the problem, but then right up, up, up on the heels of that, in verse 3, he says, but I will not go up among you. So the angel of the Lord, whether that's to be identified with the Lord or not, is sometimes ambiguous, is going to go before them, um, but I will not go among you. Um, so there's there's a closeness, a, a, a closeness of presence that is that Moses is still is still doubting here. And Moses says, um, if I if I have indeed found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. So there's he has found favor, he wants to find more favor, and he real and and he wants to know God more. And this is interesting that as close as Moses is to God, he wants more. He wants a deeper, more intimate knowledge of God. And that is the way in which um a growing, thriving relationship of God should be that that more uh, that that being with God more makes us want to be with God more. Unlike, say, eating, where you get hungry and then you eat and then you're good and you, like, there's an upper limit, especially if you eat to your full. Um, with God, that is not the case. And I think this actually speaks interestingly to some questions that people usually have about the eternal state, whether you want to call it heaven or the new heavens and the new earth, when we will be with the Lord forever. It's it's like, well, is, there's no really, doesn't sound like there's a lot of variety there, which first of all is a weird assumption, but um, but yeah, like aren't, aren't we going to get sick of just being with God? And, and that's not the case. Uh, being, knowing God and being close to him uh it it generates a greater desire to know him and be close to him so unlike being filled with food and being like oh i've had enough i'm stuffed this is a hunger where if you feed it you become more hungry and that's what moses is expressing here and um and he says uh you know like let's not forget that this nation is your people and God says, "My present will, presence will go with you, and I will give you rest." Um, but then Moses is like, "Really, please, because if your presence doesn't go with me, don't even bring us up. Like, just leave us in the wilderness, because that's what matters." Um, it is it not in your going with us, and this is very significant. Is it not in your going with us? Remember the the nature of Yahweh revealed at the burning bush. I will be with you. I will be whom I will be. I will be with you. Yahweh is the God who is with his people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other nation on the face of the earth? That's what makes the people of God special, and that goes for the church too. It isn't that we do um, anything well or better than anyone. It isn't that we have the best social services even, right? Although, you know, the church often does have good resources to help people in need and things like that. But really, like, anyone could do that. You could just go out and, and found some kind of charitable um, organization today, and it doesn't even need to have anything to do with God. And it would work fine, and you would you could meet those needs fine. The thing that makes the church distinct, the thing that the church really has to offer the world, is that God is among us, is that the Lord knows us. That's what makes us distinct from all the other people 
of the earth. It's not to say we shouldn't be doing those other things, but if you really want to know, if you really want to know why we need to keep the central thing central, which is the gospel, knowing Christ Jesus and making him known, it's this. It's because it's God's presence among us that matters. And don't miss the fact that this idea that God being with his people is that core and that essential. Jesus, when his birth is announced, as we saw in the Gospel of Matthew, one of the titles he is given is Emmanuel, God is with us. That in him, this God being with us promise of Isaiah 7.14 is ultimately fulfilled. So God tells Moses, this very thing that you've spoken, I will do. Um, I will I will go up and I will be with you. And then Moses is bold enough to ask for even more. He says, please show me your glory, which is kind of interesting, right? Because you would think that this this fire that engulfed Mount Sinai and, you know, the people are freaking out at the bottom of the mountain, the, 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 the mountain itself is trembling, Right? You would think that that would be a display of God's glory for Moses to go up into it and be there with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And here he's like, I realize that there's more of you. And, um, and God says, and, and that's what's interesting. This also, I think, is really interesting in that here is Moses, this leader who has a very thankless task. He's got to lead the people of Israel who have basic who have who have been grumbling the whole time they have been uh they have been complaining they've been quarreling and then they they engaged in this wanton idolatry while Moses is atop the mountain receiving the commandments for true worship and um and you can just imagine that that how what Moses is what where his mental state must be how difficult things must be for him right now and um, and what does he want? He wants to see God's glory. And that is, indeed, it, when things are hard and frustrating and difficult, the most powerful thing, beyond all the other good things, good counsel, good friends, uh, healthy life habits, all kinds of things like that, the most important thing that we need, the, most thing, the thing that is most desirable, is to see God as clearly as we can. And uh, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious, as for the people, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. Like, it's it's my choice, right? God's God's his, he, he has relented from his anger, but he did again say at the end of yesterday's reading that um, when I visit them, I will visit their sin upon them. But it's clear that the people are not wiped out, and so God is showing his prerogative on, on whom he decides to have mercy on. Um, and, and it is his choice. That's what mercy is. That's what grace is. It's, it's undeserved. He doesn't wrong anyone by not giving it. Uh, but he is so good when he does, and uh, it is his choice. Um, but he tells Moses, you cannot see my face, for, for, for man shall not see me and live. And that, that, 
that informs a whole bunch of things. First of all, it does inform this notion of God, of Moses knowing God face to face. That doesn't mean, even though it says as, as a man talks to his friend, that doesn't mean that Moses is in the presence of the unrestricted glory of God. The way in which God reveals himself to people, especially visually in the scriptures, are these are attenuated versions of himself. These are toned down versions of himself. And the way, and so that that kind of resolves this thing where like some passages in the Bible talk about people seeing God and then, right, we already saw one, the elders went up and they ate and they saw God, right? That doesn't mean they saw him in his glory because then you've got these other passages where apparently that's a deadly experience. Um, and uh, Moses knows this from the very first time he encounters God, when, when as soon as he realizes that that uh, there is deity in this bush, he covers his face. Um, but he says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And he tells him that he's going to put them, he's going to put him essentially in this cleft of a rock, and when his glory passes by him, he will cover him with his hand until he's passed by. And then, once he's passed by, he will allow him to see his back. <laughs> so, and 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 this just seeing the back of him would be this this awe-inspiring experience that will um, quench Moses's thirst for more of God, at least for now. Okay, then we go on into uh, chapter thirty-four, where uh, Moses is given two more tablets, or well, told to to cut two more tablets because God. Uh, resolves to to make more just like the first, which he had broken, right? Because those tablets still need to go in the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, in the morning, he does come up. And um, yeah, and he is, God is very clear, keep everybody away from the mountain. Nobody's coming up with you. And uh, indeed, he he goes and um, he's he's on Mount Sinai, and he's got the two tablets of stone, and the Lord descends and proclaims his name to Moses. And he passes before him and proclaims, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of their fathers on the children and the children's generation to the third and fourth generation. Now, so, uh, interestingly, this is part of what... Notice notice this this riff on the idea of proclaiming the name of Yahweh. It's, it's not only just the name itself, but it's his attributes, who he is. That's what it means to proclaim the name of the Lord, and that's what the Lord does here. Um, I want to also say something here. Uh, we saw this also with the second commandment, uh, this kind of statement where you get all these statements of grace, and then he talks about how he will by no means clear the guilty. And we understand that, right? This is a statement of God's justice towards those who are unrepentant. But then he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's generation to the third and fourth generation, which makes it sound as if God is is imputing the sin of a father to a son and even a grandson, right? And and a, and a great grandson. Um, but this, we I think it's important to realize that this is an abbreviated, um, this is an abbreviated version of what we saw in the 
uh, second commandment back in chapter 20, where it essentially said the exact same thing, the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation, um, but it's abbre- it abbreviates to those who hate me, it says in chapter 20, right? That it's those, this is not saying, because we, we will see this throughout scripture, that it the, uh, teaching otherwise, we'll see this, for example, in Ezekiel, right? That God does not put children to death for the sins of the father. Everyone dies for their own sin. Um, but for those who remain, it, it is. this is not saying that God, that, uh, right, a child can repent and God's like, oh, too bad because your dad was a, was a dirtbag. No, um, this is for those who hate him. This is, this is what the guilty uh, get is 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 God's full retribution on them. Um, this is not something that applies to the repentant sinner who has turned to the Lord, who trusts in Him and loves Him and follows His commandments. And uh, and Moses bows and and responds to God when he hears this. It says he bows to the earth and he worships, and he says, "If I have, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord." Notice that's not Yahweh; that's just Lord. Uh, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Notice here even the 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 emphasis on forgiveness. Okay, this is not God is not establishing a works-based religion and where where you earn your way into His favor. Even here, Moses understands this that that there is a a need for grace, a need for forgiveness, and um, yeah. So God um, essentially is renewing the covenant at this to- at this time. Um, he-, he tells them, uh, "Behold, I'm making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as not have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of Yahweh, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you." So. This is a here we have a, a positive note, right? And um, God and um, and but then there's this caution again. Once you go into this land, and I will be doing incredible things among you, and the nations will fear. Um, and uh, but but when you go there, do not make a covenant with them or their or worship their gods, and uh, instead you need to tear down their altars, break their pillars, and cut down their asherim. Uh, By the way, asherim is an interesting thing. So um, a very prominent, I guess you could call her a fertility goddess in a lot of um, ancient Near Eastern cultures around this area, like Canaanite cultures, is the goddess Asherah. And uh, Asherah is... uh, often appears as the consort or wife of the chief deity of the pantheon, whether it be Ale um, in in the, the Ugar- Ugaritic texts, um, or it be Baal, um, and even in Israel, under Israelite idolatry, the people actually bring her in to, um, to, to, to Yahweh's um, I guess you could say divine counsel to be his wife, in in essence, and this is obviously a a very scandalous thing, a very incorrect thing. But that is what popular religion looks like in Israel. In fact, there's a very interesting um, uh, inscription uh, on a wall at a at a at a site called Kuntilat Ajrud, 
where you have pictures of several deities, which may or may not correspond to the inscription, um, uh, to, to the words, um, and so it's hard to know what exactly is being depicted in the picture there, but in the words at this, seems to just be like this roadside spot for travelers to rest, but on the, on the wall of this, um, and this is a, this is a, you know, well into the Israelite monarchy when this inscription dates to, um, off the top of my head, I think it's 8th century BC, but it says, um, I bless you by Yahweh of Samaria and his Asherah. And so eventually the, the, the Israelites do, do take up the worship of Asherah. But you, you encounter this term in the Old Testament, these Asherim, and what these are is basically, it's, it's kind of like the golden lampstand. It's this tree. It's this tree-looking thing. It's not a literal tree, but it's a, a piece of cultic furniture that's meant to look like a tree. And um, that's what uh, the, uh, the Asherahs are. These are these Asherah poles or Asherah trees, and they are to destroy them because God is a jealous God, and you're not to serve any of them or eat their sacrifice. And, by the way, don't intermarry with them because if you do that, you're going to be blending your culture with their culture that, that, that is not—and and, like, don't underestimate how much— compromise will be involved by intermarrying with the people of the land. And that's why there's this big emphasis on not marrying um, Canaanites and kind of staying within Israel, as we've already seen with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now we see here with, um, with, with Moses telling, telling his generation. Uh, then we have other laws that are reiterated from earlier, um, reminded about the, the giving of the firstborn, the three uh, feasts where we were told in chapter 23, um, all males must appear before the Lord, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of uh, Harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering. And um, yeah, um, there's there's to be then some more stuff on sacrifice. Don't include leaven with your sacrifices, your grain offerings. Um, don't allow the Passover to remain until morning. Uh, remember to sacrifice your first fruits. And, uh, and then we have this one again that we saw earlier, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk, which again, as far as I can tell, speaks to an indecency, something that is just scandalous and cruel. Uh, but, uh, the fact that it is mentioned here among other, like very, uh, cultic res regulations that is having to do with the sacrificial system may sig signal something uh, a little bit more significant here. Uh, perhaps simply that don't do that as part of a sacrifice. I'm not sure. Um, anyway, Moses is atop Mount Sinai then for 40 days uh, again, and he's fasting, we're told, this time. Um, and at the 40 days, he comes down from the mountain, and it says that his face shone with the glory of God. And he like he's like, what? What are you guys all freaking out about? And the people are just afraid. They're fearful that the glory of God is glowing off of him as he spoke. And so it comes to pass now that that now he he among the people, because of his constant contact with God in his glory, um, again, it is a it is a restrained glory, but glory nevertheless, he walks around with a veil over his face. Um, and, and, um, so that the people can't see his face. Um, this may again be a riff like we saw the other day on, um, this, 
this idea, you will be like a god to Pharaoh and Aaron will be your prophet, where as Moses could not, because of Moses's meteor role as a mediator, um, as the he cannot look upon God's face, now the people cannot look upon his face. And this kind of becomes his common practice, as we see in uh, verses 7 through 11. Okay, let's look at uh, math, uh, sorry, Mark <laughs> chapter 7, verses 1 through 30. Here the Pharisees and the scribes uh, who are from Jerusalem there are there. So these are kind of like the guys who are like the real experts. And they realize that uh, the, the disciples are, are not keeping their uh, practice of washing their hands before meals. And the idea would be that, you know, that they're very concerned with this ritual purity that we're starting to learn about in the Old Testament in our reading. Um, and so they go above and beyond um, because it's not, in the Old Testament, it's like, you, as you will see, it's like if you have contact with something unclean, then you are unclean and you need to take care of that. And some of that is in washings. Um, a part of that is in washings. But here, it's it's like on the off chance that you may have touched something unclean. And notice there's there's a bunch of logic here that uh, that is extra biblical, okay? That that somehow I'm going to eat uncleanliness, as far as I can recall. Well, yeah, so you're not supposed to, like, eat unclean animals and things like that. Like, you're not supposed to have ribs, right? You can't, can't eat pork or vultures and things like that. Uh, lobsters are out of the question. Um, but here, there's just this idea that you're going to eat some, you're going to transmit defilement, through your eating, even when you're not eating something that's technically unclean. And so there's this above and beyond care for, for purity. And, um, and it becomes their tradition. So this is, this is a tradition that is added on top of the law of Moses in order to ensure that they're, 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 they're eating, they're, they're, they're remaining pure. Um, it is just washing, right? They're not offering sacrifices as well, probably, probably because there's, there's distance, right? You have to go all the way to Jerusalem to sacrifice, so you're not going to be able to do that every for every meal, right? So at least we want you to wash your hands. But um, but the scribes and the Pharisees are like, why are Jesus' disciples not doing this? And uh, Jesus basically tells them, uh, he cites Isaiah 29, and he says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrines the commandments of men. So, like, they're so concerned with making sure that everybody's obeying their their own tradition, uh, the, these, these, these kind of codes that they've developed, um, and yet they don't pay equal attention to the other really important stuff that God has said. And he whips out this example that we talked about a little bit in Matthew, where they found this loophole around honoring your father and your mother, that if you, uh, apparently, um, if you, if you dedicate something to the temple, that there, that that can be kept, um, uh, away from your obligation to provide for your parents in their old age. And so it's like this loophole so, so Jesus is like, you're, you know, you're doing stuff like this, and 
and then here you are so concerned that you might accidentally eat what defiles you. And then the, the, he, he calls the people to, to himself and he says, listen to me, there's nothing outside of a person where if you eat it, it's going to defile you. It's, those are not the things you need to be concerned with. You need to be concerned the things that come out of you. Um, that's what defiles a person. Um, and he, and he, he gives the examples here, um, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. These evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, it's interesting, too, here, another, a bunch of things. So first of all, uh, note that passage in Isaiah, right, that he says, well did Isaiah prophesy um, of you, and again, we have a passage that is not predictive prophecy. This is Isaiah denouncing his generation, right, or God denouncing the generation through Isaiah, right? But, but it's also applicable to you, and therefore it prophesies. So this idea of uh, this forward-looking aspect of, the, of Old Testament texts that that apply in new and fresh ways in Jesus's days. This is part of this broader understanding of prophetic fulfillment that I've been trying to emphasize as, as we see it throughout Scripture. Um, the other thing that, uh, that I want to highlight here is what Jesus says in verses uh, 18 and 19. He says, uh, he says to his disciples who are confused by this, he says, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters his, um, not his heart, but his stomach and is dis, uh, dis, dispelled, right? So it's just, this is just food and, and we know what happens to food in the human body. Uh, it's expelled, to put it nicely. And then he says, um, and then Mark inserts the comment. He says, "Thus he declares all he declared all foods clean," and we know that this this concern about eating and defilement was an issue in the early church, especially as it came to meat that may have been sacrificed to idols and things like, especially unclean meat. And so I think that this would be a very good example of the kind of thing that he's talking about with with. You need, you've got new wine, you need new wineskins, okay? We're going to be thinking in new categories now. And um, again, we, we, we have this subtle indication of exactly who Jesus is, like, or at least these, this hinting with this supreme authority that he has, that he can just make a statement like this and declare, okay, God told you this, but now... We're not going to do it that way anymore. Like, we're in a new phase. And it isn't just willy-nilly, right? Like, God's changing his mind or something. No, we're in a new phase in redemptive history where the thing that's going to make you fit to come into the presence of God is going to be the sacrificial blood of Jesus. It's not going to be the sacrificial blood of animals, and it's especially not going to be your ability to keep the Old Testament physical purity laws. This is a new phase. It's not that those things were evil, but they belonged to another era in redemptive history. And behold, something greater than the temple is here. Um, finally, today's reading ends with this story about this Syrophoenician woman. Um, Jesus is now up 
kind of north of Galilee, even in Tyre and Sidon. These are Phoenician cities, um, classically. And um, so this is, as far as I know, the furthest north that Jesus ventured, and he will be there for uh, a few days. Uh, in the beginning of chapter 8, he's still there. Um, and uh, this is a story we saw in Matthew, so I'm not going to go into it in a lot of depth here. But basically, this this woman who is—this um, would be Canaanite, okay? Um, in fact, I believe Matthew calls her a Canaanite instead of Syrophoenician— um, she comes to him because she's got this daughter who has an unclean spirit, and um, Jesus gives her what I understand to be kind of like a test, right? Like, are you going to allow me—are you going to take offense at me um, just knowing who she is, right? Like, you're coming to the Jewish Messiah, and you know what the— Old Testament scriptures said about Canaanites. I mean, we just read it today that you need to drive them out of the land. You don't you smash their altars and their idols and cut down their asherim and um, and don't make a covenant with them. Don't intermarry with them. So, but you understand that despite that, like this is still I, I still am the way, the truth, and the life. To use John's terminology or Jesus's terminology in John, right? Um, and so he gives her this test, right? Like, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, because often Gentiles were called dogs, right? But she humbles herself, and she says, yes, but even the dogs, Lord, under the ta- eat under the table the children's crumbs. And Jesus is—, is uh, Matthew is more detailed about how he commends her there— um, but he says, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she goes home. And indeed, Jesus's love has extended to this family as well, as well, especially of his authority over the unclean spirit that had plagued their family now for quite a long time, I would imagine. Um, but yeah, um, Jesus shows his love now, even for those who, by Old Testament standards, again, these old wineskins, something new is here, something new is happening, and the love of God is being extended the way, probably the way it should have been in the first place that Israel failed to do. Um, But here is Jesus succeeding where people have failed. Okay, that's it for today. Uh, As always, I thank you for joining me, and I hope you're uh, getting a lot out of this. I know I am. And uh, look forward to tomorrow. So until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.